Hey, everyone. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like you to consider a question. What is your dream home? Give some thought to where it is, how it would be designed, if it's near any neighbors, and whether or not it's likely to be financially achievable. For many of us here in the United States, our concept of a dream home is a large single-family home in a prime location set apart from others, or at least I know that's what came to my mind. But here's the problem. We've got a major housing shortage that's only getting worse here in the United States, and our distinctly American dream of owning a single-family home is also very limiting. What could a new approach to housing be that still provides us great places to live without excluding others from achieving the same? I can think of no one better to ask than Diana Lind. Diana is an author and a nonprofit executive focused on cities. She's centered her career on writing about and implementing ways to improve the quality of life in cities. And her book, Brave New Home, unpacks many new and historic ways for us to create different types of homes to make our cities better. Enjoy our conversation today with author Diana Lind. Hey, Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. You know that I'm a fan of your work, but I want to make sure that our listeners get a chance to know a little bit about you before I dive in. So do you mind sharing with us a little bit about you and and what you do? Sure. Um, I consider myself a writer, a nonprofit executive, um, and an urban policy specialist. Um, So I'm someone who has... Um, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, a self-trained in, in most of those things. Um, I started out my career writing about architecture and design. Um, and and for a while, I, I actually um, I worked for a publishing company called Rizzoli, focused on sort of high-end houses. Um, but that really, I think, kind of... Um, lit a fire in me to be really interested in the ways that people live. Um, and, um, and from there, you know, I, I worked at a nonprofit called Next City, where I was the editor-in-chief um, and executive director, really writing about urban policy solutions around the country and around the world. Um, and my career since then has focused at times, um, you know, domestically, internationally, um, or in Philadelphia. And and most recently, I joined the Penn Institute for Urban Research, where I'm, again, sort of starting to set my sights again on international cities and um, some of the, you know, innovations that are happening abroad. Yeah. Did you think that you would uh, end up in a career where you would be passionate and focused about cities and the evolution of cities? Is this something that you could have imagined earlier in Um, your life? A little bit. So I grew up in Manhattan. um, And so I lived in, you know, a 43 story apartment building. And just, you know, you can't grow up in New York City without being uh, passionate about cities. And so um, I think really combined with that, then I graduated from college not too long after 9-11, when I think architecture and rebuilding places was just kind of part of the zeitgeist um, that I was at least a part of. And so um, when there came this opportunity to be involved in um, Next City, which was then a a quarterly publication known as The Next American City, I was just really thrilled to make a career writing about cities um, and and about cities that are really different from New York, actually. Um, So it just really broadened my horizons in terms of like, what urban conditions look like. In in the US, it can often feel like 
you know, New York City and Cleveland, like, what do they have in common, you know, whatever. Then, But then when you kind of zoom out and you look at, you know, American cities versus, um, you know, informal cities, rapidly urbanizing places or places with, you know, tremendous public transit and fewer cars or whatever, it can start to feel like, you know, the U.S. is one bucket and, and these other places are something really different. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I do feel a little bit like... Um, just growing up in New York, it's it's a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know that most people are aware of the effects of mass urbanization. I, I might be mm-hmm. off on my dates, but I think it was only 2007 or 2008 when for the first time, as far as we know in human history, more people were living in cities than in rural areas. But it feels like the pressure on cities to accommodate us and to create a, a high quality of living is is really really high and really tough right now. Yeah, definitely. And and it's it's interesting because the US is still growing, um but you know, the the condition in cities really does vary. So, I mean, a lot of Europe is not growing anymore. Um places like Japan, you know, the population's already shrinking. China, we've already seen, has hit, you know, peak population. Um, But then places like in Africa, um, you know, Nigeria is going to be, I think, something like the third um, biggest country, you know, just, you know, huge rates of growth in many different African countries. Um, So, you know, it's interesting, like, yeah, the U.S., we're going to have to accommodate 100 million more people, and we're going to have to figure out how to house them, um, and we're going to have to figure out how to live uh, sort of within our means, if you will, with sustainability challenges. Uh, and I think that is going to require really rethinking the way that um, we we plan our cities and the way that people sort of live their daily lives in the U.S. And I think that is surprising to people. You know, I think a lot of people think, why can't this town just stay the same way it always has been? Or the city stay the same way as it always been, has always been. Um, and yet... You know, you can think that in your head and then at the same time recognize, you know, thousands of people are being born every day. Like we've got to find a place to to um, place for all these people to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're growing not just through, um, you know, new births, but also through immigration. Um, and, and that is also one of the things that distinguishes us. Yeah. Well, as somebody who normally works in business, I did I did not ever expect to get involved in some of these topics, but I have the privilege of helping on a on a steering committee to oversee the master plan where I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I first came upon you when I found uh, your book, Brave New Home, which significantly changed my perspectives on not just where we live, but how we live. Um, I want to make sure our listeners get to know some of the ideas in that book, but tell, tell me a little bit about what led you to write it and what your, what your goal was. Sure. Um, so I started thinking about writing a book like this around in 2016 when um, Philadelphia, where I live, was undergoing tremendous price appreciation, um, and not just Philly. It was happening in a lot of different cities at the same time. Um, so in Philadelphia, I think housing prices went up by about 20% in one year, and people were, um, you know, just really grappling, like, what is this going to mean for the city? Um, and and so cities around the country were thinking, you know, particularly at the kind of government level, what are some different policies that we could um deploy to deal with the uh, affordability crisis? Could we have more inclusionary zoning or rent control or 
um, create new taxes. Like, for example, Seattle was thinking about uh, a corporate head tax. So taxing, um, you know, um, Amazon and Microsoft and other major companies on the number of employees um, to pay for, you know, essentially to pay into a housing trust fund. And that ended up getting, um, that didn't make it through. But, you know, even a project like that, which was going to raise something like $20 million a year, um, was only going to create like a few hundred homes each year. It was just a small number when you consider the fact that there's, you know, I think at the time it was something like there needed to be 50,000 more new housing units to deal with the affordability crisis. So, um, so it just seemed to me that there were, um, there were great ideas out there, but they weren't going to actually solve this bigger problem, which was just that we're constantly you know, creating the most expensive housing type and in many communities, which is the single family home, and in many communities around the country, it's the only housing type that you can actually build. So it's um, that much harder for um, communities to build anything else other than that. Um, and that trying to solve that particular issue of, you know, why are we only building single family homes might enable us to more organically um, uh, more affordably build um, the kind of housing that we need in our cities. And so I really uh, wanted to write this book as a way of, you know, helping people to rethink um, how to solve that housing affordability crisis. That was, you know, part of it. Um, but then I also think that, you know, there were a lot of different issues um, that I was also trying to tackle in terms of things like, um, why is our society so segregated? Why, um, why are we, you know, this wealthy developed country that also has um, really high rates of, um, you know, mental and physical health problems? Um, you know, and I really felt I had kind of stumbled upon almost like a housing theory of everything where, um, you know, so much of these, so many of these different questions of kind of what ails us as a country could come back to the way that we build most of our communities, which is centered around a very, um, uh, you know, dominant housing form, which is the single family home. Mm -hmm. I think most people could probably imagine apartment buildings or a few other alternatives. Mm -hmm. But when you think alternatives to creating single family homes to address housing needs, what kind of other options come to your mind? Sure. Well, so one of the fun things um, about writing the book was thinking about the history of how we got to, you know, this housing type, right? So I think a lot of people in, um, when you think about the American dream, you think like the U.S. has always been this country of single family homes on a, you know, a half acre lot with a white picket fence, you know, that that's the way the country has always been built up. But actually, um, that's really not the case. And in fact, um, you know, the country's origins were in these very mixed use kind of places like boarding houses and taverns and places, um, you know, into the 1800s apartment hotels, which would have um, private apartments, but public spaces for dining and amenities like, um, you know, um, um, 
you know, house cleaning that would kind of liberate women from having to deal with all the domestic needs of their house. Um, and then into the early 1900s, you have um, a lot of kind of more specific housing types geared towards even, you know, workforce. So, you know, a specific, you know, a building for women typists to all live together and so on. And so there were sort of all of these interesting um, different housing types that were just kind of embedded in the U.S. And then you get to things that look quite similar to single family homes or kind of our outgrowths of that, you know, duplexes that were just the bread and butter of places like Chicago, where um, this is, you know, what the housing type used to be. And it was a great way for um, a person to kind of build equity in their home. They could have an apartment, um, you know, a house that was uh, a duplex, one apartment for themselves, one to be rented out or a way for families to live together. Um, and likewise, um, you know, backyard cottages or kind of built on additions and apartments for people. Um, these are now known as accessory dwelling units. That was really a common um, aspect of, of the ways that, you know, houses were built um, for a very long period of time. And then sort of over time as um, land use got more restricted by zoning and other factors, um, you end up having, you know, it being essentially illegal to build a a backyard cottage um, because it becomes so onerous to fulfill all the different requirements of the zoning where, you know, it, the cottage has to have its own driveway. It has to have a certain square footage and a certain amount set back from a neighbor's yard and whatever else. Um, it becomes kind of impossible for people to build that. So um, there's, you know, the history of the U.S. shows that there's just this tremendous diversity of housing types, and they've really been kind of lost over time. And I would say um, Daniel Perolik, the um, architect, really did a great job of, of calling this missing middle. So sort of everything in between that apartment building and that single family home is this housing um, type of housing that has been largely missing from our communities for um, you know, much of the past, you know, half century, 75 years or so. And why do you think the zoning policy became so restrictive? It seems like it's choked out creativity, innovation, and solution seeking. There clearly were social or other other reasons that we got to this point. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. I would say like in the um, 21st century, like I definitely think you need to take a kind of uh, racial focus, racial lens to this and recognize that in a lot of cases, zoning was really created in order to um, exclude people, whether by class or by race, and to create certain kinds of neighborhoods that would be, you know, very clearly defined who could afford to live there. Um, and so, you know, for much of, um, you know, the first 50 years and even onward of uh, the 20th century, um, black and brown people were often um, excluded, legally prevented from owning homes in a lot of neighborhoods because of restrictive deeds that had written into them, you know, who could actually own that um, that kind of house. Um, and you know, this has been written about extensively um, in the book Color of Law um, uh, that really kind of goes into this um, long history of racial exclusion um, in neighborhoods. But you know, beyond kind of the explicit kind of racial aspect of it, uh, a lot of um, 
you know, single family zoning really arose from people trying to, I think, protect their property values. So, you know, if you have um, a mishmash of housing um, in your particular neighborhood um, where you have you know, some houses that might seem less desirable in your neighborhood, well, then suddenly your housing prices start to go down. And so I think um, zoning really got deployed in a lot of places as a way to kind of protect the uniformity that um, some people were looking to as a way to protect their greatest asset. So, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's common sense for a lot of people. This is where many people have put all of their life savings into owning a home and they want to make sure that, um, it's surrounded by other, you know, um, other houses that are of equal value and aren't kind of bringing their housing prices down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, it's also a super individualistic rather than community-minded way of thinking about achieving prosperity. I mean, I understand it. And uh, yeah. um, I know probably many of our listeners are familiar with the concept of redlining. I, I had a mm-hmm. chance to actually see for the first time the maps of Grand Rapids, Michigan and the red lines in terms oh, wow. of where different different uh, groups could go ahead and get a mortgage. And it was mm-hmm. it was eye opening. I'm still a little bit puzzled as to why we can't reverse these trends in more purposeful or innovative ways, whether that's at scale or maybe through specific innovations or, or, or prototypes. H- have you seen pilots? Have you seen experimentation that causes you to get hopeful on, on some of these solutions? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that in many ways, the idea of trying to move beyond single family homes as being the only housing type in neighborhoods is a way to create more economic diversity. Um, So if you have more housing options, you're just going to have different types of people that it applies to. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the racial segregation is also class segregation in many of our cities. And so if you have you know, a neighborhood where you only have 2,000 square foot houses on half acre lots and, you know, that's the sort of status quo. Well, there's only going to be a certain set of people who can afford that. But if you start to have, you know, smaller houses, accessory dwelling units that some people could rent, or if you have duplexes that, you know, instead of it being 2,000 square feet, you only have to afford 1,000 square feet. Or if you start to have, you know, small uh, a fourplex and it's allowing for studios where you have a 500 square foot, you start to get various different, um, uh, a much more diverse set of people who are going to end up living in that neighborhood. And so I do think that, you know, unless you have more, more options, you're really going to end up with kind of a homogenous population. Yeah. Uh, On the topic of accessory dwelling units, I I remember hearing that ADUs were beginning to be more permissible in California and other places, sometimes known as mother-in-law homes. But given the demographic shifts and just how many baby boomers are in that like 70 to 80 year range and maybe don't want to go live in assisted housing, is that an area where maybe we've seen a little bit more growth? Yes. So the accessory dwelling unit reform in California has increased the number of permits being pulled exponentially. I mean, before accessory dwelling units were really sort of more mainstreamed um, and and, uh, allowable by law, um, I think, you know, a city like Los Angeles might have like 100 permits or whatnot, you know, just not very many per year, right? Um, And it's gone up exponentially for 
all of um, California's communities. I think it's been a, a huge success. I think there there's sort of two issues though to look at. One is that um, you know the the people who are able to build accessory dwelling units are oftentimes people who are better capitalized, more savvy. Um, they might not be building the accessory dwelling unit to you know to rent it out to anyone on the free market. It might be just kind of used as their own personal Airbnb or a place for a guest or their work from home cottage or whatever it might end up being. So I don't want to oversell the idea that this is going to be a way that we're going to build tons of affordable housing. On the other hand, there has been created a, a real market now that there's you know, thousands of accessory dwelling units being permitted every year across the state. You now have a real cottage industry of architects and companies that are trying to find ways to build accessory dwelling units more, um, more easily. So I profile in the book um, an example called United Dwelling, which has, I think, actually shifted a little bit its uh, business model since I wrote about it. But initially, its idea was to take that typology of the standard um, single family home with a two car garage and to say, we'll convert your garage for you into an accessory dwelling unit in exchange for you then sharing back some of the rent as part of this. Now, I think what they're actually doing is building freestanding accessory dwelling units in people's backyards. But it's the same general idea is that you don't have to have so much money to put up front to actually build the accessory dwelling unit and you don't have to have as much know how to um, do it. So I think that, you know, just making it legal to build accessory dwelling units is going to end up over time making it easier for more people and more affordable for people. Um, and I think it's a really great option uh, for the reasons that you mentioned in terms of multi-generational households and people being able to kind of age in place. Um, and, you know, also just for the fact that our country is going in a multi-generational um, direction anyways. People are wanting to house their their 20-somethings or their relative. Uh, people are trying to live more multi-generationally, uh, whether by chance or by force, um, in general, much more than they were, you know, even 50 years ago. The, the rates have been going up uh, ever since then. Yeah, if I remember right, multi-generational households were at an all-time high since World War II before the pandemic. I certainly heard my fair share of anecdotes about somebody's parents or kids moving back in during that time of quarantine. Is it is it even higher now? You know, there hasn't been data that I have seen uh, that has come out since then, but I have to imagine that's the case. I, you know, the the pandemic data is so interesting because I wonder how many of those uh, examples end up sticking. And I just think about all the people who left New York and San Francisco and whether people are starting to move back now and um, so on. So I'm curious, but I haven't seen any new data on multi-generational living. I'm sure it's it's forthcoming. Yeah. And I think if I remember right, it's been a couple of years, but I, I think you covered a multi-generational community. Maybe it was in the Atlanta area or somewhere else where somebody had purposefully brought in older residents to be proximate to maybe young parents or others that need a little bit more support, attempting to solve maybe loneliness among the older generation and the need for support. Am I remembering that? 
correctly? Um, well, well I'm, I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but if you're, there was a, an example I gave of um, grand families in Tucson, um, oh. which was, uh, you know, an instance where grandparents are looking after young kids, right? So um, that was a specific project that was built, purpose built for that specific instance where you have older uh, um, adults looking after young kids and how, you know, building a enclosed courtyard for the kids to play in and having an on-site rec center and having an on-site garden and thinking about sort of how for older adults who are maybe parenting for the second time and may not have like the energy to run after their kids or whatever it might end up being, this is like a... Um, a, a space that has kind of wraparound services built into it, but then also had some really smart um, design elements, like recognizing that, for example, you know, that it, for that they would need two bathrooms in a two-bedroom um, uh, apartment uh, because they're just, it's such a disparate age gap. And that that might often be the, like, you know, one private place that the grandparents have um, from their, you know, young kids that they're looking after. So, uh, yeah. So I think that there's, there, it's, it's, a, it's a field that is growing, but not fast enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that I would be so interested to see how just the senior living community space really starts to evolve in the coming decades, which I feel like is so, at this point, really restrictive. Um, that sort of, you must be 55 plus, there can't be, you know, young kids living on the premises. Uh, that feels really out of sync with how people want to live these days. And I just wonder if at some point, um, some of that will have to you know, necessarily start to shift or if we'll see some new models out there. Mm, that is really interesting. I love I love that example. You said something earlier which got me thinking, and I really haven't given this as much thought as I should have. But you mentioned uh, ADUs being used for like Airbnb and other other mm -hmm. purposes like that. Have those sort of shared economy models, Airbnb as an example, or VRBO and others, worsened the the housing situation or not necessarily? Uh, it's a good question, and I don't have like a, a pat answer for you. I'm sure that there's a lot of data pointing in both directions. Um, I mean, I from what I witness as a uh, as a regular person, I obviously recognize that a lot of housing that could otherwise be serving people um, is a, you know as year round. Uh, residence is being used for Airbnbs and therefore it's taking up housing. Uh, on the other hand, it's probably a small number of housing uh, units in any given place, unless it's, um, you know, New York City or something like that, where it might end up being a little bit more sizable. Um, and, and really, I would counter that and say, well, that doesn't let you off the hook from building more housing. I mean, that's that that ultimately is the solution that we're going to need. Uh, and a lot of times, I think, you know, is our Airbnb is really taking up housing, or are they um, just taking up spaces that otherwise would be hotel rooms? I don't know. But yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. an interesting question. And I, I don't have a complete answer on it. Well, I appreciate that. Like like so many things, I'm sure it's more complex than what might immediately come to my mind. And I appreciate your your diligence and in, in, uh, in your response. Um, 
We haven't talked about the topic of co-housing, um, and that is a term that I confess, I'm still not sure I know what it means. I have a clearer mm-hmm. sense of what co-working looks like, mm-hmm. but is that just a new term for an old concept or what is it? Sure. So there's co-housing and there's co-living. Co-housing tends to be a owned ownership model um, where you have, you know, let's just say an example of a co-housing development might be 10 town homes that all have maybe some shared spaces um, and that are intentionally built so that you know, the neighbors get together to cook meals together. They might, you know, all have um, some shared communal spaces that they use together. Um, And there's some sort of community that's built into it, uh, making it a little bit different from, say, a condo association or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Co-living is a a rental model where you have uh, people living in private apartments, but with also, again, shared spaces. And The co-living space was very different pre-pandemic and even more different, you know, in 2018, 2019, when I was writing this book Um, and really kind of an interesting outgrowth, if you can think of it as actually an outgrowth even resulting from the 2008 housing crash um, in that people, you know, a lot of big investors were getting out of um, investing in single family homes and more interested in um, investing in rental um, and co-living sort of developed into a model that investors got really interested in as, um, again, much as co-working was very popular at the time as a way to enable particularly like young people in expensive cities to have access to you know, a great neighborhood, an awesome building, all these great amenities like exercise classes and communal meals and a rooftop bar and whatever else. Um, But they would really be um, kind of, you know, paying for this different kind of lifestyle where they'd have a pretty small apartment or studio and then much more shared space. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the general idea with both co-housing and co-living is that these are ways of living that are really focused on some sort of idea of an intentional community. And then you get some people who are in the co-living space who really shy away from that. And they're like, oh, that sounds too, you know, um, commune. Yeah, communish. Um, for me, that's not really what it's about. But I think I think it really it is. I mean, you you can't sign up for one of these things without some somehow sort of be signing up for this idea of a social connection with your neighbors. Um, and I think that we haven't really seen this trend play itself out entirely. Um, I, I really do think that there's, you know, there's poten- there's a ton of potential there. I think a lot of people would be really interested in a co-living model if it would kind of expand beyond that, you know, 20-something expensive city mm-hmm. set. Um, I just think of people who are in a lot of different life transitions, moving to different cities, getting a divorce, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe becoming empty nesters, whatever it might end up being. And this could be a really interesting way for people to kind of build community, move to a new place. Um, uh, and 
you know, have just a different kind of existence than, you know, just living in your own place and doing your own thing. Yeah. Oh, I could see it being incredibly compelling given our loss of sense of community, that desire to be part of a tribe. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the old notion of, of third place from, from the sociologist Ray Oldenburg always focused on this idea that there should be something proximate to where you live, where you hang out with other people that are different. So whether it's the cafes in Paris or the public houses and in in England, we don't have a lot of that in, in most of the places that I've visited. You're lucky if there might be a community center or a pool in most suburban developments. So to be able to go downstairs and find right. people would be amazing. Totally. I mean, and I, I wrote the book, the intro of the book starts out with the story of me um, having my first child and being on maternity leave and being totally on my own and just being like, I, I don't understand. How did humans survive if you're just like raising a kid by yourself? And it dawned on me like, whoa, actually, most people didn't raise their kids on their own. They were part of these really intense communities where you would be learning from other mothers and, you know, grandmothers and people would be cooking meals for you and taking care of you. And, um, you know, uh, your kids would be playing with other kids, you know, right in, in your neighborhood. And like, we are still the only people with kids on our block. Um, so it's a very different, um, you know, it's a, it's a different experience these days. And so I, I really oftentimes when I, when I was working on the book and reading about co-living at the time, they, um, the, which is still the big, biggest co-living developer common was developing something called kin. And I don't think it exists anymore, but the idea was it was going to be a family centered co-living, um, building type. And I would have totally bought into that um, if they had had something like that um, here in Philadelphia, because it also is just, you know, one of the aspects of everyone living kind of on their own is you waste so much, not just money, but, you know, thinking about like all the toys that all the parents buy, everyone has the same stuff, you know, and it's like, if we could all share that and have a, a play space, and I know that there are certainly there are buildings, uh, larger apartment buildings who have those kinds of communal um, opportunities. My sister lives in Brooklyn and she lives in one that has like, you know, a kid's room and stuff like that as well. Um, but that's different than, say, having a building where you all have a shared kitchen and there's a chance that, you know, your neighbor might end up you might just have dinner with your neighbor just as uh, because you're all hanging out there together. Um, and I think um, that seems exciting and and that potential has not been fulfilled in the u.s yet no it hasn't okay i have two more questions for you one of them is going to feel a little random that then the one after that's going to be uh moving towards us wrapping up the one that feels a little more random is i think most people would find it very amusing to think that people used to live out of hotels i know that that was like a thing the only reference i can think about in our in our modern times is the movie two weeks notice with hugh grant where he's this rich billionaire and he says to sandra bullock yes i live in a hotel my life is a lot like monopoly but but back in the day, it, at least for short-term periods, it wasn't that odd to like take up residence yeah. in a hotel, well, right? No, no. I mean, th- that was the apartment hotel model. Um, and people did live in ho- hotels. Uh, and especially, you know, your bachelors lived in hotels. Uh, and it was, I think, uh, 
you know, it's not like everyone lived that way, but it was it was pretty common. Um, and and then really what ended up happening is that kind of there was an era at the kind of turn of the 20th century when apartment hotels were chic and cool. And then they kind of eventually became more like SROs over time and then became um, single room occupancy buildings. Um, so uh, the the apartment hotel kind of morphed into a less desirable housing form mm. that, especially in the 70s and 80s, as a lot of cities started to think, how can we gentrify our downtowns and ensure that these places are desirable for people to live in? Uh, those single room occupancy buildings, those kind of seedy apartment hotels really became, that was when they became illegal and, and no one wanted them anymore. But there was there was an era, especially in the first half of the 20th century, when apartment hotels were, they were a thing and people did live in them. Um, and I give the, the anecdote of how Herbert Hoover was sort of the architect. He was the person who really... Um, sponsored this whole idea of a build your own home, own your own home movement that a century ago took the United States by storm and was the first person to really get the United States government focused on this kind of concept of the American dream and really imbuing home ownership with the morality that we have, that we think of it today as like you're sort of a superior person if you're a homeowner. But he ended up dying um, in, uh, oh, I'm just blanking on the name of the hotel in New York. Um, but he lived in a hotel, you know, he was one of these people who that was like his, his, um, his residence part of the time. No kidding. Um, yes. So there That's you go. So interesting. I, I didn't know, by the way, that that emphasis on home ownership dated back that early, given some of the heat he took for what was going on during the Depression. That's fascinating. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm, I'll get to my closing question for you, which is, um, I would love to know your vision of how cities might change. And maybe I'll frame it this way. But if you could be like the head of planning for an mm -hmm. existing city, take, you know, take where I live in Grand Rapids, or where you live in mm -hmm. Philly, or Cincinnati, or wherever, and just wave that magic wand and begin to make just like smart, impactful decisions. What would be at the top of your list for things that you'd want to see done? Ooh, I, that would transcend just being focused on housing. So do you want me to focus on specifically on housing or just anything in general? Oh, well, I definitely want to talk housing, but I think we should open it up as long as you, okay. you mentioned going there. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of a an overall vision I definitely think that the 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 15 minute city, which has been getting a lot of press and a certain amount of pushback recently, uh, is is a vision that is really great for our, our particular moment that we're living in, where um, that people should be able to walk or bike to all their daily needs within 15 minutes. And to think about different nodes within a city as being those places that you could provide that life to. Um, so I like kind of also starting to thinking about that or just thinking about some kind of a statement of almost a, uh, a vision of how you want someone to be able to lead their day. I was reading an article um, recently about someone talking about how her vision for improving urban places is being able to walk or bike 
her children to an affordable daycare. And if you use that as sort of your vision, how do you get to that as being um, a way of determining your city? So I think that people being able to um, to use non-motorized transit, um, move around their city sustainably is pretty important. Um, I think mm -hmm. having the density to enable a 15 minute city requires having a mix of housing types. It requires housing density um, and it requires multi-purpose buildings and multi-purpose areas. So no more restrictive residential only areas. Um, and it also requires a certain amount of geographic equity so that it's not only one neighborhood that gets the schools and one neighborhood that has the hospitals and one neighborhood has the shopping or whatnot. Like every neighborhood has to have all of these things. Uh, so I like that as a model. And I think if I were a planning director, I would kind of try to take that and think about, you know, four or five neighborhoods in the city and how to really help them achieve that and um and to to be bold about it because i think that really when you look again starting going back to what we started our conversation about looking at other cities around the world the u.s looks really far behind when you compare us with you know paris which will be have a car-free center by 2024 berlin which is planning a, uh, having a referendum this year on a car-free zone that's going to be huge. And not just these huge places, but, you know, littler cities like, you know, Ghent or, you know, um, Manchester, you know, just these other, which is a big city. But the point being that there's smaller areas where people are kind of rethinking the fabric of those places and also really trying to recognize that, uh, people are living, have different patterns of, of behavior post-pandemic, and so that we need to also build off of that um, and, and make cities in particular, are, I think, are going to have a higher burden of proof almost, where they're going to have to make the case for why people should live in a city versus in an area where housing is going to be cheaper. Like Housing is necessarily going to be more expensive in cities just because of all of the you know, added costs that come with um, the the density of city urban places. So they're going to have to be more special um, as a result. And I think uh, being bold is a way to to make that happen. Yeah, that is fascinating and certainly thought provoking. And I've been interested just at a distance from understanding the 15 minute city, but your emphasis on its need to be more dense and not as spread out mm -hmm. makes all the sense in the world, but it also makes sense to me in terms of how that could begin to solve our need for housing that we've been talking about so much on this, this episode. So Diana, uh, your perspectives are fascinating. I'm thankful for you, for your impact on the world. And I appreciate you being a guest. Thank you so much. And thank you for reading the book. 